Hey everybody, how are you doing? Funny little, um, that was my funny little discoveries recently about um, paradiddles and uh, paradiddles with flams in them, which is something that I've been sort of practicing quite a lot um, over the past year. Um, I kind of decided to get back into uh, the snare drum again, which I've talked about in previous uh, episodes, and I'm not going to bore you to death with that, as I already have done. Um, but one of the things I discovered last weekend was just this uh, this thing about uh, basically a triple flam paradiddle. So you play a normal paradiddle, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. But you replace the two single strokes with two alternating flams, and then you put a flam before the double. Sorry about my slightly flaky vibe there, but the sort of microphone is a little bit in the way of the practice. Well, the mic lead actually is slightly in the way of the practice pad, so I'm sort of playing with a bit of restricted movement. But you get the idea. And it's sort of, it's just great, those little discoveries. And the reason why, so it's with the sort of, this is the, the sort of whole vibe of this episode today. As you can see from the title, which I've mis, uh, misspelt on the project on Logic, um, kept pushing instead of keep pushing. Um, yeah, it's just, I'm so bad at typing. Um, but yeah, keep pushing because doors open. Um which is not some um, kind of physics question. Uh, well, it is all a physics question, actually, because it's drums. But um, it's about that, you know, at the moment, I think, you know, maybe people are feeling a little bit, um, you know, it's been going on a bit, this vibe and this uh, situation. We're back in this kind of back to where nearly where we were last March and April, you know, at the moment, things are pretty restricted doesn't feel very different for what was around here because we've been kind of it's been a bit like this really since july you know we had a little glimpse in june and some of you know, just well just june really actually um where things felt slightly better and then just all kind of deteriorated after that and then we've just been you know as things improved here things improved well, worse the rest of the country so so it's been you know a funny time now i think christmas was a bit of a pain for a lot of people and a bit you know it was a, it was a bad it was bad news um plans for christmas and all that stuff got disrupted um and then we get into january in january i always find um well january and then february you know i, I it's not my favorite time of year I, but i don't think i'm really um saying anything that's particularly groundbreaking there for anybody else uh, I think a lot of people, probably in the north of England um, or the north of the United Kingdom, whatever you want to think about it, it feel the same way. You know, it's just um, you get kind of January, which is a bit crap, really, and then uh, February's uh, more crap. So it kind of feels, yeah, it's like a thing of normally uh, I would be this time of year um, would be sort of feeling a bit like a bit nowhere, a bit slightly negative. Okay, but, you know, not massively motivated. And a year ago, um, I we'd just been away to Norway and 
and experience the um, what they call the what's it called the Arctic winter, uh, which is that. I mean, it's basically I've been I've been to northern Sweden before, uh, and we went to Nor we went to Tromso in uh, right up in uh, above the Arctic Circle in, in Norway last Christmas for a holiday, and uh, and it's literally dark all day. There's no light at all. Uh, last time I went to the Arctic Circle, near the Arctic Circle, there's a place called Luleå, which is at the top of Sweden. Uh, well, top, sorry, top where the sea is in Sweden, um, up near the sort of, um, getting up to a sort of Norland uh, and all that area, which is a beautiful part of the country. I, I've been up there a few times, beautiful. And uh, you got a small kind of, um, yeah, comedic amount of daylight uh I, I, I went over christmas holiday years and years and years ago and uh, and i've been up there since a, few, a couple of times and yeah you get this kind of you know you get like an hour and a bit of light um and you don't see the sun and in tromso is even more extreme than that you know I mean, and a lot of you know tromso there's a lot of mountains there and uh fjords and all that sort of stuff and uh so you, you're the the sun is you know, he's behind the hills anyway, so you know it's not even it's not getting to the horizon. It, there is there is sunrise of, of some sort. There's a bit of light, but it's not really anything. You know, if the, if the weather's a certain way or whatever, it's just you know. And it was quite remarkable because we then went to Oslo, and Oslo doesn't have the Arctic winter. Oslo has daylight in winter, um, and it was amazing to get down there and just appreciate this kind of the daylight. You know, just for a few hours, but. Uh, and it's been very much like that here because we had snow last week and it was not too much snow. Uh, I had to go to Leeds on Friday. I had to get an MOT done, which is not exempt in this lockdown. Um, we got the snow before Leeds and then Leeds was very, very snowy. Um, very much more snow in here. It was much colder. And it was really just a very, yeah, very cold and quite oppressive, very foggy and um, not much light, you know. So it was kind of, I was sort of remembering last year in Norway and, and that sort of, um, just that feeling of not a lot of light. It's very different up there because you get these clear nights, you know, very, very clear. And um, so you get kind of the moonlight thing, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not light, light. It's a different kind of light, obviously. But, um, but yeah, it's, yeah. So it's, anyway, it was just that thing of of uh, of getting on, kind of being finding it easy to be unmotivated at this time of year. And uh, this year, because of a few things, I think I was talking about last last week in the, the podcast about some things I want to do this year. There's a few other things as well which I was determined to kind of get on top of. Um, just to go off on a tangent slightly, I, I decided to. Um, to do Weight Watchers, um, and I've never done anything like diet like this before properly. I mean, I'm actually doing it, I'm actually paying to do it, you know. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I'm sort of two and a bit weeks into it now, you know, and um, the ambition. I just had this kind of thing about getting a load of things kind of together by um, by the end of March, you know, by the spring, uh, because I was maybe slightly naively thinking that you know things were going to sort of slightly improve by spring and things were going to get back to normal and you know we were going to, things were going to start to ease. I'm not sure about that at the moment, but anyway, not to sort of dwell on that too much. Um, but 
the one thing that I've been wanting to do for a few years, in fact, if I think back about it quite honestly, it's something I've wanted. I'm looking at, at, on my wall here. I have a, um, I have a poster from um, a gig called the AB, which I think is pronounced Ancien Belgique, um, the Ancient Belgique, which is a great venue in Brussels uh, that I've been really lucky to play at three times with Tom McRae. Um, and um, I have a framed um, picture from the gig we did in 2010 there. Um, and uh, actually, no, the first tour we played at a place called Cirque Royale, actually. So we, we had played there twice, AB, because um, we did a tour in 2010, and then we played there again in 2015. Um, so, yeah, but it's a great venue. I could go on and on about how amazing that venue is in so many different ways, but it's just um, a mega place to... Um, to play um and i imagine it's a great place to watch music as well um but it, I, it's, it's just something about the way uh the way the room sounds where you're treated everything about the way you know the, the way the room the building's designed and all that stuff it's just a it's like a proper venue that's built for making everybody's life really easy to play music in you know it's uh, it, it, on every level you know like acoustically and like food and or just all that stuff loading in gear you know it's location just uh, and then the, you know there's the gear and stuff and the size of the the size of the stage and the way they can redesign the, the room for the seating for standing and seating and stuff they can have different configurations to make it feel intimate um if it needs to or feel like a big venue if it, if, it, if it's that kind of vibe you know and uh uh, we we did um, yeah the two gigs we did they were amazing they were probably two two of the highlights of those tours um, the long tour in 2010 the, before we when we did sort of I the highlight uh, on that was a place in uh, Paris I'm trying to remember the name of the venue now it's a very small venue it's like 500 you know an amazing vibe and it was really just um, yeah, one of those special gigs. And it was at the end of a long... We'd done a long stint around the UK and into Ireland, and then we did London, which was a great... We did a really nice gig at Scala. And then we went off to Europe, you know, and that was the kind of bit where we all were sort of away solidly for a few weeks, which was great, and it was just a great vibe, you know, the whole journey and a great bunch of people. Um, and we got you know all up to Norway and uh, over Switzerland and stuff and uh, amazing you know and I really you know really cherish those memories now and um, yeah I'm looking over at the um, poster of it on the wall you know and just thinking about um, that vibe you know one of the one of the things that I was when I was doing uh, in 2010 we did the very long tour. And then we did uh, a tour later in the year. The one thing that I really wished that I'd was a bit more on top of was my weight, you know. I'd always um, just, yeah, since I got well when I was 31, 
I kind of had this thing of like, you know, they were telling me all the time to put weight on, you know, just get the weight on because you've lost a lot of weight and you just need to put weight on's good. It means you're not ill and all this kind of stuff, you know. And so there's just this kind of big push that went on for a while to put weight on, you know. Uh, and then that sort of just, you know, in my 40, in my, in my 30s, my late 30s, and then obviously you know, we toured, I was, it was just um, in my, when I was 39, in my 40, in my 40th year. Um in 2010 it was just i got to this point where i'd like put on you know a little bit more weight than was a lot of effort to get it off you know and uh, and then since then i've just staggered around this kind of bracket of weight uh, went a little bit over that quite a lot not long after that time, I went for a bit of a rough time and then uh, kind of got things together and then lost some weight, um, but still didn't get below sort of magic figure of 16 stone, which has been a sort of, um, yeah, it's been, I haven't seen that for a long time. Um, and then um, about two, uh, when was it, 2017, was where the year I had my hernia operation done. I had this hernia diagnosis in sort of 2003 and didn't do anything about it. Um, and then eventually I had to do something about it and got referred 2017. And it was just after we'd been away to South America. Me and my girlfriend went to Galapagos and went to Peru and stuff and all that sort of thing. And then she did a big long holiday. She was away seven weeks. I was away for three um, she went all the way down to Patagonia and all that stuff, and she went to Easter Island and blah, blah, blah. And my ambition before I had the operation, so I came back, um, yeah, came back from South America, and then my girlfriend came back uh, just at the beginning of September, and then she was going away again to work for about eight weeks in India. And uh, we had this, like, five days where she was home and I was going in hospital and then she was going to be home for, like, two days after I came out of hospital and then she was going to go away. Uh, and it was really lucky that she was around, actually, because it was the most excruciating operation. It was so painful afterwards. It was horrendous. But the thing I was really proud of was that I started doing this fasting thing in the June before... So by the time I went to South America and it was really hot in, um, uh, well, the whole holiday, it was just warm. We did a lot of walking and stuff and was quite, got quite fit. And uh, I got down near 16 stone. And this was from uh, nearly 18 stone. And I was doing this 5-2 thing in June and July through into August. And then we went away Um right at the beginning of August and I didn't do the 5-2 and we're away you can't do that kind of thing in my opinion when you're when you're travelling like that and we were really it was full on travelling if I taught you through the, the, the schedule of it you'd be like blimey and because my girlfriend when she organises holidays they're like military campaigns you know because it's about fitting things in and uh, and we did see a lot. I mean, I was there for three weeks and, and flew home from Buenos Aires and uh, we saw a lot of stuff in three weeks. Um, and if it was me organising the holiday, we wouldn't have seen anything. We'd have just rocked up somewhere, flailed about for a, for a while and then um, got back on a plane and come home. So when I kept, by the time I got home, which was, yeah, middle of August, <clears throat> the operation was beginning of September, I kind of got home and... and 
uh, carried on with the 5-2 when I got home, had the operation. And when they weighed me for the operation, I'd been weighed when I did my, um, when I met the consultant. And the nurse was like, wow, you're like significantly lighter, you know. And uh, and it felt really good. It felt like a really positive thing, you know. Um, and then I had the operation, couldn't walk properly for ages. It was horrendous. It was so painful. And I was off work for a few weeks and it just wasn't great, you know. And uh, <clears throat> couldn't do the 5-2 when I was doing this because you just can't. When you're recovering from something like that, you just eat, you know. And anyway, over the, you know, over the course of that next year, um, through not being able to do a great deal physically. I mean, it took a year to, for me to recover from that, to, to, for the pain to go away and to feel like mobile and like normal again, like I wasn't thinking about things when I stood up. The weight, I got back over 17 stone again. You know, that's what happens, isn't it? And then, uh, yeah, before last uh, Christmas, um, was it after last Christmas? Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, some point in the last... Yeah, it was. It was um, just before lockdown. I was 18 and a half stone. I'd really, really just taken my foot off the uh, gas or whatever. And when lockdown started, I decided to stop eating white bread and crisps and and drop the beer intake down, you know, and, uh, and start practising again, which is, and um, we've talk, talked about that many times, and sit lower on the on the drums and stuff. And uh, but but the thing, the main thing was to try and get get match fit again technically, and find get this new position on the kit. Like commit to sitting low, and um, it's all worked out great. And so the weight came down to seventeen stone. I got down to seventeen. Bang on, you know. And it stayed there. And I, I eat quite large portions, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, I'm 6'4", I'm quite a big person, so, you know, I need, you know, to to function each day. I think it's like 2,800 calories is a kind of recommended vibe, sort of like that, very roughly. Um, I, think I, I think it's like 900 calories just to sit down and be alive, you know, just to breathe and think. Um, but no, I just decided I was really sick of this thing of... Um, of not feeling fully energised. And, and part of it's also to do with getting back into seriously practising again, starting to take some lessons again, which I've started to do. Just had my second lesson last week, which was great. Felt really pleased with myself and motivated because I'd practised everything that I'd been asked to practise and I could, you know, do... I could do all of it, not not to a level that I'm happy with, but I, I, I wasn't, you know, going in there and, like you know, oh, yeah, I don't have time to do this or that. I'd really practised everything that uh, that he'd given me to do, you know, um, and that was good. And then he, you know, immediately gave me some more things from that that were, you know, linked to those things and slightly more challenging and and uh, feel like, they're, you know, they're really kind of positive things to be doing. Um, and... Yeah, I'm really kind of, I'm really kind of, you know, uh, really up for it. I'm really kind of, yeah, feel really motivated, you know. And it's the same with the diet thing because I just, I just remember that thing of being a few stone lighter and just having a bit more energy playing, you know. Um, and then it's just that knock-on effect thing. I started exercise, got on the exercise bike again. So my old friend um, Max Beasley Junior. 
um, who lives in Los Angeles now. He's lived there for 19, 18, 19 years. <clears throat> we haven't seen each other for a long, long time, but we've spoken a few times and we and we spoke about two months ago. We were, I was talking about wanting to lose weight and get a bit sharper, just kind of when I'm practising and stuff. And he said, there's one exercise you should do. It's this cycling exercise. So I've got an exercise bike up here, which I bought a couple of years ago and, and was really into it for a time and then sort of got a bit bored of it and a bit demotivated by it. Um, but I got back into it again. I got into this exercise that he mentioned. And this isn't, wasn't to lose weight. This was just to sharpen things up a bit, you know. And so while I've been sort of, you know, I've got the pad here and I'm, I'm practising and I'm also next door on the kit practising, then at the end of every day before I leave here, I get on the bike and do my uh, do my exercise, this specific thing, this 20 minutes thing, which I've just lengthened a bit. And... Um, and then I've had all these problems with my shoulders, which are linked to typing. It's all tension to do with being crap at typing and using computers at the wrong desk height and stuff. And it's got really bad again since lockdown because I've been working at home. Um, the desk I've got at home and the table down in the house, the, the, the desk here and the table in the house, they're the wrong height for me. And I and they, they're not good for my arms, you know. And I got into a bit of a mess uh, by last September and and I go and see this guy I think I mentioned before in Leeds this physio guy called Jan who's amazing uh, he's a really clever guy and he's also into martial arts and stuff uh, he's an extremely terrifying man um, very nice man but he's extremely scary um, and we were chatting about because you know I've got these problems with my arms and one of the things he said to me is he said that it looks to him like I'd lost a little bit of um, muscle or strength in the outer part of my shoulder. Because um, he was basically saying that I, I had very strong upper back and I had very strong biceps and triceps. He said, but your, your upper, outer upper shoulder, uh, the outer, yeah, shoulder, um, he said you need to build that up a bit. So we talked about this thing about um, press-ups you know, and I said, I'd love to be able to do press-ups. I can't do a single press-up. And he said, well, have you ever learned how to do them? And I was like, learn how to do press-ups? No, just assume that you just either could or you couldn't. You're either strong enough or you're not strong enough. He said, well, that's true, but you can learn how to do press-ups. There's a technique to learn how to do them. Um, and he showed me this thing, and it's, like, really interesting because it's like what I, you know, what I'm doing with the drums and why I teach people with the drums and about talking about all sorts of different ways of approaching technique and patterns and things and and this exercise you showed me is um i'm quite excited about it as well because as i'm losing weight i'm doing i'm only doing it a couple of times a week because my shoulders are still a little bit fragile but um i'm i can definitely feel that it's kind of um it's sort of changing like my core um this kind of core strength, this core kind of foundation in order to be able to sort of do press-ups, you know. And the other thing that I'm doing, which he told me to do, which I've which I've kind of always done anyway, but again, I'd fallen off it last in the last couple of years, not done a lot of it, is light weights. Um, so I've got 
kind of I've got these very very small dumbbells, little little sort of gym workouty, the sort of dumbbells you can use when you're like jogging on the spot or something. They're very very small. I think they only they weigh like a half, kilo and a half or something. And they're just fixed, you know, uh, made out of cast iron or whatever. They are. I don't know what they are, but they're you know they're they're really nice. And I and I I use them a lot when I'm practicing snare drum. I'll do I'll do quite a few things with, with those little dumbbells when I'm practicing snare drum. But I've got some other dumbbells as well. I've got lots of different kind of weights for them. And he said to me, you need to do lots of light weight, and it will help you build this thing up with your elbows. Get rid of this kind of tennis elbow thing and help you know help with the tendon and everything. Uh, and I've been doing that over the last uh, two weeks, and he's right. It really has worked really well. My shoulders still aren't great, um, but my arms and everything just feels better. So my, sort of my ambition is to kind of get down, you know, down a couple of stone and get a little, just a bit fitter in the arms and legs because I'm doing the cycling as well. Um, and then, yeah, just then make it kind of like a new like a de- like a reset like this is my new default and then you know with the with the food just go back to eating um well eat, eating as i am now but maybe slightly bigger portions because if i just keep eating as i am now because i'm you have to do a points thing with weight watchers you know if i keep eating as i am now i just keep more losing more and more and more weight you know and um I don't really want to be 12 and a half stone again because I just think I look a little bit thin because I'm tall. I just, yeah, I'm kind of, I'd be be really chuffed to get to 15 uh, and I definitely feel lighter. And then, you know, if I can get into this press-up thing, then I can get my kind of <coughs> core, um, my stomach and my, my shoulders stronger. And all those things are really great for drums, you know, because you want this strong kind of core, you want to be able to, you know, be, be sat on the stool, be balanced through your backside and your heels, but feel strong in the core. And then you want, you want, you know, your your legs to feel uh, like they're pretty f- healthy, pretty fit. My my legs are all right. They've always been pretty good um, and quite blessed with that. And my arms, it's just the sort of middle part, <laughs> which is where everything kind of accumulates, as they say. Um, so. Yeah, that's the kind of ambition. So this is the the thing about today. This that's the longest. I think that's my record breaking longest introduction. Uh, must be at least twenty five minutes of introduction to what the podcast actually about. And that's the end of the podcast. So bye. Nice, nice to see you. And I'll see you again again. No, I'm only joking. Um, so yeah, this the thing that I was. I made some notes this week. Again, I was just had this kind of thought. And about you know, oh, what can I share this week? What's been going on? Well, it's two weeks because I've this, I've committed to this bi-monthly, which is what it is, obviously bi-monthly, not thrice monthly or um, whatever. That uh, that would be three times a month. So that wouldn't that wouldn't be right? I shouldn't describe last time, wasn't it? Once every three weeks, but no, bi-monthly. I've committed to this kind of two a month now uh, for the time being. We'll see how we get on. I don't think it really matters anyway. I, I, I don't think there's many people that follow this week to week i think people kind of just get into it and they listen to the episodes and you know it's just a while away a bit of time um so but uh yeah i was gonna getting back into this thing of of, uh, of writing little notes again because i was thinking oh god i'm gonna be doing this on sunday night and it is sunday night now 
And this one profound thing that came through this week that was just something I wanted to share was this idea of development opens up new possibilities, you know. Um, it gives you this glimpse into into variations. Um, and it's that thing of taking input from external people when when you're on a certain path, it it all comp- I think it all compounds itself, you know. So, like I've been really lucky in this last uh, couple of weeks um, because I've had a lesson, and then we had um, we had a, a masterclass at work with a drummer called Jason Brown, uh, American drummer from New York. Um, I think I've talked about him before in the podcast. Absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal kit player. Really um, just got a great vibe and a sort of aspiration for uh, for his playing and how kind of eager he is to, um, you know, to be just to, to be really, really good. <laughs> I can't put it any other way, really. Um, one of our students asked him a question about what he's what his hopes and his development thing, and he, and he answers with total domination of the instrument and laughed, you know. Uh, and I just thought that was uh, so funny and so beautiful the way he put it. And I know, I know exactly what he means. Um, I think it's I think it's a great thing to aim for. Um, it reminded me of a story. Years and years ago, I was touring with a singer called Dana Bryant, Um she had, um, she's in New York. I think she's from New York. Um, she certainly lived in New York. She was a she was a poet singer, and um, I was very lucky to do this little tour with a, a friend of mine, uh, who's a, a keyboard player and an MD and stuff. Um, he, yeah, he asked me to do this thing, and he knew her manager, and uh, and she wanted to come over to the UK and do these few gigs and she just wanted to sort of um, have a band around her of people that were just, um, I think, just kind of, would just, yeah, not kind of industry sort of people. I don't know, it's got a vibe that she just kind of wanted people around her that were just kind of really down to earth and just musos, you know. Um, and we had a great vibe. I was really, I remember when I was... Um, before the rehearsal, I had on my gear at this old rehearsal studio called Sankey Soap, which was in Manchester. Um, this was in 1997. Um, and I remember being at the bottom of the lift shaft and the lift came down. It was one of these old, you know, mill sort of lifts, you know, manual lift. You open the big doors and bungy gear in, you slam the door shut. You've got to make sure it's shut probably because you get trapped, you know. Uh and the door opened, and this amazing, this amazing drummer called Mikey Wilson, a great Manchester drummer, uh, walked out the lift, and he was like, "Hey man, how are you doing? Boom, you know, having a bit of a chat." And he said, "Look, you look really down, you know." And I was like, oh, "I'm just really, really, just like really freaking out. I'm really nervous, you know. I've got this rehearsal, and oh, I just, you know, I just don't know. I just, I just don't have the confidence. I just don't feel very confident about the music, and I've practiced everything, but." I don't know, I just I don't know if she's gonna like my playing and you know, I was just ah and the people that played on her records and you know from New York and I just thought, oh, why am I even here? You know, what the hell am I even being asked to do this? You know. 
And he was like laughing at me, just saying, what the hell? Like, why are you framing everything like that? Why aren't you just, why are you feeling, what? Just, this is like, it's the worst thing you could think. Why you should just be thinking much more positively. You've been asked to do it, you know. Anyway, he was right. We, we got up, he got up into the rehearsal and we set up. And, and then uh, we met her and it's great. We played through some of her songs and she was really chuffed that we learned her music properly. And, and, you know, and all that stuff it was all mega you know um and then we did some nice gigs and uh, it was great i did north sea jazz festival that year for instance with her at, uh, when it used to be in the hague and that was an amazing experience uh experience i'll never forget you know but we were talking um we did the second tour we did we were just have we were in like a you know splitter van thing we were doing like a few gigs uh around and about and we you know we were spending a bit of time uh, chatting just like you do, you know, back of the van, everyone's having a chat about stuff. And uh, I was talking to her about, I was saying, Oh, I'm going to need to sell something because I want to buy this other thing, and uh, you know, and blah, blah 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 blah. And she just turned around to me, she said, That's not the way to think about it. You have to imagine, you have to visualize that you own both things that you've found a way to um, to be able to buy the thing you want without getting rid of the other thing that you don't want to get rid of. And you need to sort of do that more with everything in your life, you know. It's about visualising things. You know, it's just aiming as high as you can imagine. She said, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just saying that you should be thinking about things in that way because... You know, if you just resign yourself all the time as to thinking, um, oh, I'll do this to do that, and that's kind of all it is. She said, you, you're limiting the way you're thinking about things. You're limiting the possibilities and the opportunities that you may be giving for yourself. Or you're limiting pushing yourself to be more motivated, to work a bit harder, to earn a bit more money and do different things in order so, so that you have more opportunity to, you know, to spend that money on things you need. And remember, what I needed... I needed this Octopad um, because I was working with, I started working with um, this guy called Jamie O'Dell, a band called Jimster. We just at the beginning of that whole project. I mean, I've been working with Jamie and this quartet, this guy, Roger O'Dell. Uh, sorry, that's, that's, sorry, that's Roger O'Dell. Roger is Jamie's dad. Roger O'Dell is Shack Attack's drummer. Um, and uh, I was very lucky through Jamie to meet his dad, and his dad's a great guy, Roger, mega, mega guy, and a great drummer, but a great, great person, and a great teacher as well. Um, yeah, just like mega. And yeah, I was, you know, Shack Attack as a band that I knew when I was, you know, younger, about 10 years before that. So it was like, yeah, really great to meet his dad and stuff. But no, a guy called um, Roger Wickham. He's called Chip Wickham now. That's his kind of. He's got a kind of stage name. Uh, that's his artist name that he goes out on now. Chip Wickham. Um, but yeah, me, uh, Rod, Roger, and Jamie, and me, and a guy called Chris Brown, uh, a dear old friend of mine, who's a really good bass player. Uh, we used to play a lot together, and we used to travel around a lot together. I think I've maybe talked about this in one of the early podcasts. But the Jamie uh, had this project called Jimster, and Roger. Um, and this guy called Sheen Towers, a uh, really good bass player and, and writer and stuff, uh, and martial artist as well. Um, they played in this band called Jimster, and there was no drums. It was all programmed, you know. And 
we'd sort of had conversations about, you know, me getting into uh, playing in that band. And then this kind of jam thing started in this club in uh, Manchester. Um, it was a really weird place, opposite the Royal Northern College of Music, and it used to just... I don't know who ran it or what the vibe was, but I used to just rock up there, um, up like 18 flights of stairs, you know, you do. And I had this weird setup. I had an Alesis D4. I had these Remo practice pads with piezo extusers inside them that were like triggers. And I had this little 13 by three and a half pearl uh, snare drum. It's really nice little snare. I had it all in this rack system that I sort of built. Um, I, bought, I bought this rack thing from um, from Johnny Rado secondhand, and then I sort of adapted it all, and I, and I basically ended up with this situation where I had this these pads and this snare drum, and the snare drum was on like a because I had one of these um, the pearl. Um, the, the rim mount things, you know, for toms. I had the snare mounted on the rack on one of those. So there's no stands on the floor, you know, it's just the rack stands. And uh, I had I had a call-out rack for my, my, my DW kit, which I bought in 91, and I had this other rack. I was a kind of rack-tastic kind of person. I couldn't imagine anything more hideous now or, like, carrying all that stuff around, but I used to carry it all. That's probably why I was 12 stone. Um <clears throat> Anyway, we kind of this jam thing um, started happening, and it was really, it was quite, um, it was quite a heavy vibe. And we used to um, do this drum and bass thing um, in ninety seven, ninety eight, and it was an imp- it was like improvised, and J- it was like Jamie he had he had his S, he had like an S I think he had an S one thousand then or maybe the S three thousand can't remember. Um, and he had his synth set up and then Roger used to play flute and he'd play sax and he had pedals and things Sheen used to have um, he had this five string bass and he had this crazy pedal that he really knew how to use well he had kind of all these sounds he was doing and then I had this setup and I had, a, I had acoustic snare drum and acoustic cymbals and I had these these pads and um, and the bass drum uh, I used to use my bass drum but I also had a trigger on the bass drum and I used to trigger loops off the bass drum, and it be, it was like a bit of a vibe, and we got quite well known in you know, Manchester around that scene. And um, I used to hang out with people like this guy called Andy Barlow, who uh, was in Lamb, uh, and John Thorne, who was in Lamb. They used to come and watch, and um, it was just that kind of vibe. And then we used to do gigs. Um, we used to do gigs at a place called Collider as well, which was a different guy called Kareem. A keyboard player. Anyway, it was all this kind of scene. Anyway, I ended up so we ended up doing this band Jimster, and we did did this EP called um, Perennial Pleasures. Static Dynamics, one of the tunes on it. Perennial Pleasures. Anyway, uh, that was my kind of first um, thing with Jimster, working on with with them. And then we started doing some live things. Oh, and we did Berlin Jazz Festival as well in '97. Um, we did. The, well, it was a kind of. It was a. It was a, a kind of not a fringe festival, but like a, a promoted. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I used to have the poster. It was a great poster. 
I lost that poster when I moved around a bit in the late 90s. Um, real shame. Um, but it was part of the Berlin Jazz Festival, but it was like an electronic music thing. You know, and they were kind of, you know, the Berlin scene, it was like another one of those things, you know, so lucky it was another place I, I didn't want to leave. You know, when I went to Berlin, it was just the club scene and everything was great. It was very much kind of up my street. It wasn't kind of hardcore like the Manchester scene, which I wasn't involved in at all. I wasn't into. The Berlin thing felt just much more like, it felt more like a jazz, just felt more more jazzy. You know, all the clubs were, the, the music wasn't quite as loud and the music was a bit more, you know, a bit more jazzy and, you know, and there was hardcore things going on, but you could just sort of, you know, do your own thing. And this place that we played in, was amazing. It was like this old derelict kind of building that had like loads of different, um, loads of different levels, and there was loads of different clubs going on, different events going on. And anyway, we did this gig, and I used that setup. We managed to take that setup with us. Um, <clears throat> managed to take it on the plane and stuff, and and then kind of got known for that a bit. And anyway, after that, I did this gig with 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 Dana, you know, and. Uh, and I wanted to upgrade these things to an octopad. And so I'd said to her, oh, I'm going to have to sell something else to get the octopad. And she was like, no, no, you, no, 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 no. That's not the way I think about it. Anyway, she was right. So when I came back from that tour, um, I just had this thing like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm not going to sell the thing. I'm just going to be a little bit more kind of, um, I'm just going to wait and wait for the right octopad to come along and all that stuff, you know. And sure enough, um, I'm trying to remember the name of this company. There was somebody in Manchester who used to be a dealer of all that kind of electronic instruments of Oberheims and all that kind of stuff. And he was the he was the guy to go to. And uh, this was before the internet. You know, you just you just ring him up, and I'd and I'd spoke to him and I'd say, if you get an octopad in a pad eighty, I think it was yeah with the eight with the eight with the eight ins and then the eight pads. Or was it four ins and eight pads? Anyway, you you know you had the four trigger inputs and it had no sounds in it. Um, and I was using an Alesis D4 before that, which has got twelve inputs because he used to the D4 was used a lot in studios, wasn't it? It was for for kind of reamping drums, so to speak. And you know they'd send the signal out of the kit. So if you had like twelve channels of drums, you could send the output of the uh, of the drums. I think on an insert or something to the D four, and then you could re-trigger sounds. It was quite a common production technique, and it would they'd be in time, you know, <clears throat> because they'd go in on an audio thing. You'd set the gate and everything on the D four, and then you go straight back out the outputs on the D four into the desk into a, into a bus. You know, and then you'd have um, you'd have your acoustic drums, and you'd have the D4 mixed drums, and also the D4 was a MIDI interface for you know for other things. So, um, so I was kind of yeah, the D4 was something I got quite into, and then when I got the Octopad, it was even easier to use. So I ended up yeah, ended up not selling the thing, getting the Octopad, and having this thing of like you know aspiring to think actually no i'm going to visualize the highest possible thing and so this is that massive tangent there is this is the kind of the jason brown comment and it reminded me the other day of that thing of yeah don't be compartmentalized into thinking oh i should just be realistic you know we, we i think we live in a bit of an age where you know people are told to sort of think realistically and not to think big and i'd forgotten that i'd stopped doing that you know, I'd forgotten that I I actually had 
um, aspirations, you know. And there's a difference between, I think, having just pushing yourself and having aspirations and being completely deluded, you know. And uh, the one thing I'm definitely not is deluded, that's that's for sure. Um, I remember when I met uh, George Rossi, Jorge Rossi, the drummer, and I was talking to him and he said to me, he said, Dave, you like to kind of, you're like to self-whip yourself, don't you? And really, you're so hard on yourself, you know. And I'm like, well, nah, nah, I just, you know, I just, I'm just, I sort of disappoint myself a lot. So there's definitely no delusion going on there. I think maybe I've been a bit harsh on myself. But this past year of practising a lot more and um, gigging a lot less, so getting a l no positive feedback in real time from human beings, you know, in the last nine, ten months, eleven months even, um, and just well, not not always. I've been doing a bit of recording and stuff, and people have said some nice things, but generally, not having that kind of human interaction of playing and um, and just you know practicing things and being really brutally honest and recording them and, and listening back and going, ah, oh, that's really not happening. As um, it's definitely kind of reignited this sort of this thing of having a higher aspiration. And what Jason said the other day, I, yeah, I found it very, very amusing. I mean, and he did as well. We, we, I mean, quite a few, few of us were laughing, you know, because um, he was being a bit tongue-in-cheek about it. But what he was seriously saying was he was, you know, wanting to really get together some quite advanced techniques in some of the styles of music that he doesn't commonly play, you know, um, because he's got such a strong uh, base. It's so strong, you know. Like the the core is so strong that the, the the technique, um, you know, just his just his snare drum technique is so it's on such a high level, you know, um, just as a snare drummer, you know, and and that understanding the mechanics of playing snare drum, and then he, you know, and then he's kit playing. You go and listen to him, just check him out, go and look him up on you know whatever. It's just ridiculous the the rhythmical complexity that he, he he's able to play with and the you know his sound and the feel and the grooves the styles the the technique and then the chops and the and the and the, the rhythmic yeah just the, the the chops and the rhythmic complexity and the under and then that sort of the, the jazz sound world you know and um, yeah anyway I was you know very inspired by all this and just got back into having a bit more faith in a slower process you know of of thinking like for instance i don't do any exercise on a sunday uh, my friend max said to me you've got to have a day off exercising you have to have a day where the muscles have a day off doing that exercise you know so I have a day at Sunday, I have a day off all of it. I don't practice the drums at all. I was playing a little bit on the pad before, but I've done nothing today. All I did today was put up some uh, more um, acoustic foam in my little drum booth. Um, I, I did a load more, kind of glued some more foam to some cardboard I had, and I've made another eight, uh, six or eight sheets. Um, so that was it today. My plan was... Yeah, but tomorrow I'll be back at work and in the day and, uh, and then after work at five o'clock I'll be, you know, I'll be on the drums, I'll be practising for a couple of hours and then I'll be on the bike for 25 minutes and doing some and then doing some dumbbells, you know. Um, and 
it's kind of nice on on Sunday. Like we, me and my girlfriend went to the allotment today and lopped a load of, uh, you know, fruits. Got like a fruit cage, you know, with lots of different blackberries and all kinds of stuff going on in there. And it needed some a bit of attention. We took the um, we took the we got a net that goes over the top to stop the birds eating all the all the fruit in the summer. Uh, we took that off a couple of weeks ago, and that was a nightmare because a couple of the bushes had grown massively through it because it was so wet last summer and. And then sunny, the stuff grew a lot. <clears throat> but then today we just we were just down there for a couple of hours doing that, you know. Um, and I really enjoy this day off, you know, um, because it really feels like I've earned a day off. And then tomorrow I can sort of hit the ground running again. And but I'm really I've had that feeling like I have that sort of feeling like by now I'm like yeah, it's, yeah it's kind of looking forward to get back into it again. You know, and just that thing of it's just slow process, slow process. And so some of the things I've been practicing, I don't want to go into too much detail about them. Um, but the one thing I'll say is, and I was talking to um, John when I had my lesson, um, I was saying that I'd noticed, again, uh, stuff going on uh in my left foot that wasn't going on before and i was just saying that certain other things are certainly more immediate now uh and just just when people when you look enough for someone to say something to you in a certain way and then further down the line years down the line for you to revisit that statement and to really see that it's correct you know like i know that his he made a statement about my bass drum technique about five years ago he said you don't have bad technique you have you just have coordinational issues if you can resolve those coordinational issues you'll notice uh, a huge difference in your bass drum technique um, now that was based on there's a couple of caveats to that one of one of them f was one I I've really committed to is pl to play heel down you know um, I spent most of my life at the moment and this is no um, this is no kind of criticism by the way what I'm about to say but I spent most of my life at the moment when I watch Instagram for instance the drummers on Instagram drummers of Instagram hashtag <clears throat> I just see everybody playing heel up I see everybody heel up whacking into the bass drum boom you know it's all that dynamic that's cool that's fine um but one of the things what he said to me about this coordinational thing and uh i remember you know, when i was recording with um tom mccray and uh laurie evans a project they've been doing evans mccray um, which we recorded a year last August. Uh, I remember when I, was, when I got to the studio, I was talking to Tom then about this thing of practising, still practising and trying to get better at playing heel down and all that stuff, you know, and we were both talking about, and he was like, oh, you can't, that's brilliant that you're still into, like, you know, kind of getting better. And it's like, well, yeah, it's just I've got to, you've got to keep going. I said, you don't stop writing, do you? You can't, you can't stop writing, can you? Was like, no, you know, obviously not. No, um, it's just you know, amazing, amazing writer and blah blah blah. But it's uh, it's funny how then I had this kind of quite clear idea about 
this thing and now I have a much clearer idea because the thing that I hadn't hugely felt then, even though I knew it was right and was telling people that, that John Riley was correct in what he'd said in 2000 and uh, whenever it was, 14, 15, he'd said about... Uh, no, it was later than that, 2016. He'd said about my, my bass drum thing, he said, you have a coordinational problem, it's not a technical problem if you saw it that way. Uh, I'd, um, from practising this last year and sitting lower and committing to playing... Uh, sorry, to practising heel down. I don't play heel down. I play it any way it needs to be played, but I, I practise everything heel down. Don't practise heel up at all. Um, even in the left foot. And we, we were talking last week when I had my lesson with him and he, and he was saying... Uh, there was this uh, Art Blakey thing he was showing me, which has got a it's got a crotchety triplet thing in the left foot, and he said I he said I play that uh, when I practice it, I I tend to play it always play it heel up because it gives it more of an articulation, and I was saying to him yeah I'm not going to practice it heel up I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to I'm playing through the ball of my left foot I'm trying to and he was like yeah absolutely you just keep doing you know he said but I tend to I said look if I'm playing the heel will come up. I won't even think about it. But when I'm practising, it's about discipline, about being disciplined. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to understand that. It's not about restricting yourself in any way when you're playing. It's got nothing to do with playing. It's um, it's funny when you talk to different people about practising, uh, even students that don't really know how to practice or are learning how to practice. They're coming from a background of playing a lot and thinking that they practised and then realising what practising is. And it took me a long, long time to realise what practising actually is. It's working on things that are good for your playing, good for your playing, find good things for your own playing, not generic things that are just kind of good, but actually you know, tailoring things and knowing more about yourself and then reaching out and asking for help. Um, and that's why I tend to have good relationships with students that I'm teaching at, at college because it's, uh, if, uh, the longer relationship I have with them, the more they tend to come with to me with more specific things. Um, there's some things I like them to have together because I think they're important. Um, but it's not a dogma. But it is about, you know, my, one of my things is I want them to be able to have a clear idea of what they want to sound like. Uh, and that's not, I don't mean just like, oh, you know, like sounding like Steve Gadd playing those kind of patterns. I'm talking about sound, the sound they want to make on the instrument. Um, it's, got a, it's got to be a sound, you know, it's not about having a sort of um, copying another player. These, you know, obviously you can use that for referencing. Um, that's really, really useful for referencing. There's always players that are playing close to a thing that we aspire to sound like but it's that thing of you know i know how i want my snare drum to sound i know what that is you know when i drop the stick i drop the stick in i know how i want my stick to connect and land on the snare drum when i'm playing a ride cymbal i know what sort of ride cymbal i want to play and how i want it to sound you know that's what i'm talking about I'm not thinking Tony Williams, 1964 or something, which some people do aspire to. I'm not thinking about that at all, you know. Um, it's I, I maybe was thinking about something. Well, I was thinking about Jack Jeanette, 1984, uh, definitely at one time, and I've got a ride symbol over there in the bag, which I've talked about before, which does that all day long, you know. Um, but that's changed, you know. 
Uh, and still, the thing was with the Jack thing was Jack was a reference. I got, I found the symbol. This special edition is ninety one, Mehmet Agop Istanbul special edition, which Mark Fletcher bought for me. Uh, it turned out to be a peach. I've still got it. And then I was able to then work on that sound I was aspiring to get close to, you know. And it was my sound. It's nobody else's sound. Just because it was based upon Jack, what Jack sounded like, you know, at that time, the Istanbul period of Jack, uh, post-pasty and pre-Sabian. Um, so I think it's like, yeah, like all the 80s, uh, maybe some of the 70s, actually. I'm not that sure. That's probably, yeah. But worth doing a bit of research. I'm pretty sure he was, a, he was a pasty player when he was playing with Charles Lloyd. And then he was an Istanbul player at some point. Um, and then all those Jarrett, the 80s Jarrett stuff, up until like the late 80s, um, is all, well, whenever the Sabian, whenever he went, he went to Sabian and got those signature symbols made. And then the second, the sort of Mark II of them was the, I think they're called Encore, aren't they? But. Um, like the parallel, like if you, when if you get into the parallel realities period of Jack with Pat Metheny, Herbie, and the, the live thing with Dave Holland, um, that's all Sabian, Sonal Sabian, and uh, Aquarium. You know, he's always been. I think he's always been an Aquarium player. Um, it's funny when I bought these Sonors off uh, Joe, they had Aquarium heads on them. Um, but I'm an Evans. I use Evans. I've, I've got a, an arrangement with Didario. And uh, yeah, the, the 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 toms at the moment in the drum room here. These ones have got the the, the calf tone fifty sixes on. You know, they're beautiful. They're really nice. Um, and I've got them kind of on all on all of them now. You know, um, they sound really really strong. These Sono drums with those heads on, um, especially when you hit them hard for, for recording as well. Um, they're quite interesting. They're quite rocky, and um, they're great when you put like a like a plate reverb on them. They've got this kind of attack, you know, because of the phonic shells. You know, um, there's like an attack that um, I don't get out of the Yamahas. The Yamahas are just different. Uh, well, I mean, they're obviously different. The shells are completely different. Maple and thinner shells. Um, because the phonics are like well, nine ply, I think, or something. They're really thick, heavy drums, you know. Um, but yeah, they're great when you like just yeah something about that sound. Uh, I've been having great fun this last year. Uh, just having them set up and not having to take them out and gig. It's been really nice, you know. Um, but yeah, just yeah. Back so back to this thing of, of focusing on, you know, the, these these exercises that I've been given, and then just working on them and noticing, having this conversation with them about noticing that things suddenly I'm getting this flexibility uh, in in other things that I haven't been practicing, but because of they're a byproduct, you know. And then he gave me these. Um, it was funny. He gave me this this variation to practice for this exercise. He'd given me. Uh, sorry, he's doing my things a bit cold. Um, this. This thing from stick control that he gave me to practice, uh, which he's not not playing it, um, playing it between the right foot and the left hand in swing time, uh, and then he said, "Right, I want to," because I'd said, "Oh, I found this variation where you play semiquaver triplets," and he said, "Well, let's well let's just take a step back a second. That sounds that sounds like the next stage beyond this stage." He said, "I want you to practice the same patterns, but I want you to put them into." Um, 
crotchet triplets or quarter note triplets, as he was saying. And uh, I was like, oh, hell's bells, you know. And he said to me right at the end of it, he said, I think you'll get it pretty quickly. And then I had my lesson, I finished the lesson and I was sort of back at work for a bit. And then at the end of the day, I got back on the kit just for an hour because I was a bit tired and had the lesson. It was quite full on and uh, talking about a lot of different things. And I started practicing this thing and uh, and I got it almost immediately. Like, you know, three months ago, the thought of practicing that exercise would have been full on, you know, it would have been like, oh, that is really hard. And in the lesson, I thought, oh, it's going to be really hard. And I'd had this conversation with him about being aware of having this new flexibility and, you know, and sort of saying, yeah, yeah, I've noticed I can do these things and whatever. And he was saying, yeah, well, that's, you know, great. And that's what you'll find. And the brain is, has a, he said, you know, it's a great way of putting things just about the brain. Has more, it has more idea about how those things work, you know, because of practicing these certain exercises. But I had no idea of actually how much further I'd got with it because I didn't realise by by him just describing these exercises and then he played them to me, you know, because he can play everything, uh, John, that he talks about. It's like amazing and he plays it, he can play so well, you know. But he played it for me and I was like, oh, that sounds really complicated and he just said no you'll get it quicker than you think and i got it in 10 minutes i mean i've not got it all down but you know there's that there's that sort of that first stage isn't there with any new in inverted commas exercises is the first time you play the basic version of it you know you play it and you go oh that is it i can play it and then things tend to snowball from there because you you know you you've got that uh, cognitive thing going on you know the, the, the neural network has kind of connected and uh, it starts to want to make those other connections very quickly and uh, yeah I had a real moment of that and and then suddenly it I just had this thing of seeing all these other possibilities you know about uh, what what other things were going to be possible what other things were going to be like they they're tantalizing close you know and it got me thinking about uh i was i was trying to blag my way onto this vinnie colliuta drum hang thing on thursday and a friend of mine uh, he's, he's quite close to um, the guy that runs the drum hang thing uh, but it didn't happen it would have been it was already sold out and I and he'd offered. He said I might be able to get you on it. And uh, and anyway, we didn't talk about it again. It was obviously you know it wasn't going to happen. And it was there'd have been a lot of people trying to get onto any space on that um, onto that thing, you know, because um, it was the second one Vinny's done. It's the first one I've been able to go and actually go on. You know, it was on a it was on a, it was on a funny day, um, and it was a, yeah it was on a day where I was like oh, I'm free to actually you know. I'm actually free to see this one, you know. Anyway, um, that didn't happen. So but that's fine. Um, but the, yeah, the the Vinny thing um, is about four-way, um, it's about four-way coordination. So he's, um, in fact, it was a question I was going to ask, actually. Um, but I think it's quite famously known or well-known. That, that book, 
is a book that he studied. And I've owned that book for a long time and I've never done a page of that book. I opened it and closed it. It was like, oh, my God, it's a horrifying book because it just looks... It looks really hard to read and it just looked really hard to do, you know. And I wasn't in the right frame of mind about it. But now, now I've kind of got some stuff down. Uh, I can see actually, maybe that's this is the next stage. It's just a, it's just an exciting thing, you know. Um, just uh, having had this little eureka moment uh, again with the with working out patterns against other patterns using the flam idea has made me think. Oh, I can actually play a lot of different things at the same time. And I think that's really helped with even getting into these exercises quickly because I've kind of got that in the back of my mind all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's always that way in any way, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, I've got, yeah, so I've got all these other things to practice that are all based upon the same exercises. And it's that thing, great thing again of, you know, the, the, that old tradition of, of getting a lot of mileage out of very few things, you know. Uh, but alongside that is these book, this book Jason Brown's uh put me on to which is called um superior drum technique uh i think it's called uh, guy or guy lefebvre i think that's how you pronounce it i, I apologize to anybody who's french listening who won't be no one who's french will be listening to this but um it's a snare drum study book that I bought uh, over Christmas. Uh, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the last podcast, actually. But, yeah, I just started practising that, and it's really hard. Um, and I didn't do much on it last week. I um, When I first got it, I spent, f- like, two days quite into the first three pages and uh, freaking out a bit about how little I knew about playing in that way, you know. It's like a whole... Not a new way of playing, but it's definitely a different concept. Uh, and then I kind of came back to it and struggled a bit because work started just after New Year, got back into work, and work was full on immediately because of the, the coronavirus crisis. And I'd not appreciate how much headspace that took. So I find it really hard to get back into the um, into the, the Superior Drum Technique book. But I'd, I'd kind of... I had a bit of a reset on it and uh, it's been kind of getting back into it again. And And, and you know... The like, for instance, the the double flam, the triple flam paradiddle, um, came that came from practicing some of those other exercises. There's no doubt about it, you know. Um, and it was so obvious how easy it is once I'd kind of done it. It's you know, um, but the the one of the other ambitions this year is the Steve Gadd one of the of a flam paradiddle diddle alternating, you know. Uh, that's still an ambition of mine to get down this year. Um, I did spend quite a lot of time last summer playing that every day, just quite slowly, just trying to get it into the muscle memory, being quite methodical about it. And then I just sort of stopped practicing it. Other things happened and um, this, that and the other. But yeah, I'm going to get back into that again. And then, you know, I had some, and some, uh, there's been some little vocabulary things that I've got, off um off my out of my lessons you know and uh, there was a couple we did last week which were really interesting i've been spending a bit of time with those um because i was just talking about i was saying how bored i am of, of my vocab and the things that i'm playing and it's really nice to just have some just have somebody give you some different things like the specific exercises you know specific patterns um 
that are usable in lots of different styles of music, but mainly useful for me in jazz, you know. They're, they're stuff that I can use in jazz soloing, which I, I always want my vocabulary to be able to sort of link to that thing, you know, um, be able to sort of change the way it sticks. And, you know, one of the things he's really challenging me about as well is he's getting me more into playing single stroke patterns uh, as well, which I always shy away from. We had a long conversation last week about I always, if you play like a six stroke thing from the... Uh, between the uh, high tom and floor tom and bass drum, I would always play left, left, right, right, foot, foot, like that. And he was saying I should practice the, the right, left, right, left, foot, foot, which, you know, I have practiced that in the past, but I just said, yeah, I've always shied away from that sound because I don't want to play heel up and I want the bass drum to sound, you know, at even level. And he was like basically saying, yeah, well, you need to, you need to be sort of trying to articulate the bass drum more, just practice it and just try and bring the level of it up. And uh, and then the other thing as well is I've made a sort of want to get my double strokes louder so I can kind of use that vocabulary and that approach technically to play stuff that's maybe would be played with single strokes. Uh, and that's been going quite well. Um, I was practicing with these very heavy sticks that I've got, but actually... I've kind of I've moved over to these. I've got these Vita, the Sugar Maple Piccolo. Um, don't like playing on the kit with them, but they're quite nice. They're quite nice on the pad, you know. Um, but been sort of practicing with those a little bit, but also just practicing with my Erskines, you know, with with my my normal stick, um, the SPE ones, you know, the, the standard Erskine stick, which is the one I've. I always use when I play when I play the kit. I tried playing these piccolo ones on the kit, but I just didn't like the ride cymbal sound. You know, I immediately was like, "Oh, that's not the sound. That's not my sound." Not because it's just a sugar maple thing. They just the wood sounds different, doesn't it? I know some drummers, some amazing like I think Eric Harlan plays nylon tips. You know, and he doesn't sound like he plays with a nylon tip. He sounds like he's He's got a lovely warm sound on the cymbals and stuff, but I think I'm pretty sure he plays with nylon tips, you know, which is incredible. I couldn't play with a nylon tip. Well, I probably could, but it would have to be, a, you know, a real commitment. But, um, yeah, so it's just um, a reminder, really, to myself and just to say to any of you that are out there and, that are, you know, have been practising and maybe this second, or is it th is this a third lockdown? I think of it as a second lockdown. I didn't really see the one in um, November in the UK as, as a lockdown lockdown. It wasn't the same because we were still teaching students in the college. You know, they were still allowed to come in and use the building. Now um, we can only have, we can only teach individual students. They, they can come into the, they can use our building. It's still open, so it's, it's better than it was last year. But we can't do any group teaching, so we can't, students can't come together and be in the same room, you know, because we're not allowed to have, obviously, households aren't allowed to, sh uh, to share, you know, not allowed to go to another household, so therefore you can't have people coming into the same place. Even though, you know, you can have people going to the same work, and we've got very, very safe, um, the rooms are very safe, you know, they've got the screens and stuff, and... So it's a bit of a weird one because, you know, theoretically it's a full-time course. My kind of, in my argument, in my head, I was having with myself, um, 
well, I was having with somebody from the Department of Education was, well, if, if we're like my, like my brother and uh, and his girlfriend are both going to work, you know, whereas they didn't last lockdown, they were they were off, they were furloughed and spent three months off work, you know, um, and they're now going into work. And, um, and I could go into work because the building's open, but you can't be in a room with somebody else, but yet people can go to work and be in a, in a working environment with other people. So why can't you do that studying? That's what I'm finding a bit weird. Um, so, yeah, so it's that kind of, um, that sort of situation. I, I see this as lockdown too, really, just because of that difference, because, you you know, you can't go to, um, you can't go to another household and all that stuff. So, um yeah, it's been uh, if you've been if you're feeling a little bit kind of like demotivated by this situation, um, I can totally understand and get it. Maybe try and find a way to um, go to bed and get up and reset and just start again. You know, just go. This is the first day of a of a new vibe and set some goals, whatever they are. Maybe it's just have a lesson with somebody or something or, you know, or to go and watch something on YouTube that you've been meaning to watch for a while, something that you wanted to get into or just, you know, or go and listen to something you wouldn't normally listen to. But it's, uh, you know, this these month, this month of January and February, it's, it's a bit crap, you know. So try, if you can, to find, um, find a, you know, just like a, an opportunity to... Uh, to reset if you're struggling with it you know if you're not struggling with it then great you're doing great and um, you should share that vibe with other people you know if you're feeling positive and getting things done then definitely share that vibe around you know Um, I went through last week I went through a bit of a kind of Instagram I'm going to be off Instagram thing And, and I am actually I'm not posting anything now uh, on the post, on the feed, or what, what is it, feed? The thing where you post videos and stuff. Uh, that's, um, <clears throat> there's not going to be anything on there now for, um, well, I'd originally said six months. I was going to have a six-month break uh, because I wanted to practice the stuff that I'm working on. I don't want to be having sort of, you know, I wasn't going to write any new piece of music to practice too. There was nothing to film I don't want to be filming myself doing my practicing things. Boring. Nobody's interested in that. But I was going to do a load of filming because I want to create a load of content for my membership site, which I eventually will get off the ground. And the idea behind that, just to sort of as a little glimpse for anyone who's listening to this that's interested, is that I use a book to teach from at college. It's uh, it's stuff that I've written myself. It's basically uh, a way into playing jazz drums from a different background it is all the information isn't in the book it requires you know it requires myself really to kind of help people through it and to explain what the vibe behind it is and it's a conceptual thing as well as a practical thing and so you know my part of the bargain in my guarantee in with that is that i'm alive and i can share that information you know um but I realised that, well, one is I've taught lots of people it, so there's lots of really good players out there, lots and lots of young, really good players that have studied all that stuff and, and to all different degrees and all different ways, And, I, and I, but do know what the vibe behind it is. So 
it's like whether they choose to share that vibe or not in the future is completely up to them but the, the the information isn't dead because it's been shared but i would like to share it in my own way the way i intended you know the way i intend to share it so i'm going to make a series of videos that are about that book that go all the way through that book um talk about how to practice that first page the balance of sound the sort of the basic level of two levels of sound how that model works all the way through that first chapter into the second chapter um and then talk about uh there's a there's a thing about the flam which i uh, which i could you know do um just do i've already already made some videos years ago about the hand-to-hand flam it's all about the same concept because it's all based upon that concept but um and then there's the style section, you know, which I believe, you know, if you want to, you want to be a jazz drummer, a drummer that plays the music of jazz, the the style, the genre, whatever it is of jazz, whatever that means, and really it's a statement that's kind of ridiculous, really. If you're going to play in those kind of settings, you have to be a style player. There's no way around it. You can't you can't go on the stage as a jazz drummer and just play ting 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 swing drums, because I haven't done a single jazz gig in my life where everything was a swing. It's never happened. Um, all those gigs have different eras of swing, styles of swing. Some of them were with brushes, some with sticks. Different Latin styles. So, you know, do you know your Latin jazz? Um manteca you know that kind of thing do you know your samba your bossa nova bossa and samba are a massive part of a jazz gig style thing you know they're you know bosses are all over all, all over that uh, that world of music and uh, you can't play bossa nova you can't you can't do a jazz gig in my opinion you know you can't do it properly um and it's not just about playing the pattern it's about knowing the style and listening to some of that music and then um you know afro-cuban 6A, Bembe, all that stuff. Waltzes, can you play a waltz? Can you play in three, you know? Um, we've also got this thing now of more and more of uh, the contemporary jazz thing and people do arrangements of standards in odd time signatures. Can you play in odd time signatures, you know? Um, all that. And then groove stuff, playing grooves, you know? If you're going to play Sidewinder, you know? Can you play that kind of groove, that sort of sound world? It's not it's not playing funk, is it? It's a different sound world, you know. It's funky, but it's a different sound world than playing like Dennis Chambers in Parliament or something, or, you know, Clyde Stubberfield, James Brown, Bernard Purdy. It ain't that vibe. Um, not that they're not the most ridiculously funky things in the world, they are, but it's just that you're playing like Sidewinder, on a jazz gig, you're doing that thing, then you've got to have that sound world together. And it's a, it's a, it's a jazz sound world. And so my, that's why my whole concept with that teaching thing is about is about bringing that jazz sound world into all those styles. That's what the core of it's about, you know. And all those exercises in my book and some other things, uh, the Ted Reed stuff, which I do alongside at Syncopation and... Um, some of the other bits and bobs that I look at, maybe Wilcoxon, um, they all support that thing, you know. And it's just about having that having that kind of connection to that sound world. So, 
So yeah, one of my plans this year is to make a whole video series and have all that stuff documented in a way I'm really happy with and then be able to sort of have it on a website. And if people want to, they want to kind of have, you know, um, have those lessons without me being there, they can, they can have those lessons. Um, they can, you know, they can pay for those videos and, uh, and they can, they can do it in their own time, you know, and have me there to help them on video. Um, cause a lot of it is about when you understand the concept and you, the sound, you got the sound world right and you, you can see what the techniques are behind it, how to feather the bass drum, how to do the drop skit thing when you're playing ride cymbal, about the balance of sound, about, about choosing those two levels of sound, what they are for you. Once you've got that thing, then it's about time served, you know, it's about getting on with the job or work or practicing those things and making sure that every time you practice, it has that sound world. And that's still how I practice now, you see. You know, this is the thing I was talking to John Riley about, about not playing heel up on the Art Blakey with the crotchet triplet, the hi-hat thing, playing heel down, because I want to practice that sound world. I want to make sure that I've got that thing down with my heels on the ground so I can play everything from the from the heel down thing, you know. Um if I was playing that pattern live on a gig, I, would, I wouldn't even be thinking about it, whether I was heel up or heel down. I'd just be playing the pattern, you know, and, and probably have the heel off the ground and be flying about all over the place. But that's, I wouldn't practice that because it's no point for me, you know. Um, so, yeah. So anyway, um, blah, blah, blah. I go off, I digress again. So that's kind of it, really. Um, I just wanted to share that thing about, you know, the more you work on things, I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, isn't it? But I think sometimes we can just get demotivated in maybe things, out, bigger things out in the world, or it can just be that we maybe have been practicing the same things a little bit too long and been going around a bit around in circles in them. And, and as Eric Harlan puts it, you've beaten them into the ground, you know, because uh, we shouldn't practice things we can play. We just, you can warm up with things you can play, but don't practice things you can play. Practice things you can't do. Make sure you sound like a beginner every time you play the drums or whatever instrument you're playing, but just have that beginner thing. You know, be humble to the beginning of something. It's really important and uh, appreciate its origin and where it comes from and, and where that little root is going to grow for you, you know. So um, anyway, I think that's enough. Uh, been going on a bit. Um, so hopefully, yeah, have a great week. And well, two weeks, sorry. I've got to get out saying that because it'll be, yeah, I'll be probably end of the month now will be the next episode I'll be recording. So um, yeah, keep safe and uh, bye for now.